What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. What's your writing, friend? Only the unqualified to write about. What's that? My life story. You're writing your life story. You bet I am. Am I in it? You just entered. Michael Madsen and Kurt Russell there in Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Adam, speaking of writing, a movie you tried to write a top 10 of 2015 list without having seen. You just entered. I thought it might. The Hateful Eight, one of a few late 2015 releases we didn't get a chance to discuss before the new year. We remedy that this week with a belated chat about the new Tarantino and Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant. Plus, our top five most anticipated movies of 2016. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by our friends at Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Josh, we love getting testimonials for our sponsors. Our listeners can decide how much credence they should give to Jacob, who writes to us from Denver with his recommendation for the Mubi service. But first, he wanted to share his favorite films of 2015, and they include at number nine, Your Beloved White God. Oh, I like number that. Number four, Ex Machina, which we both love. Number three, It Follows. Very good. And he had Slow West at number one, which mm. didn't really come close to making our top ten, but we were both positive on that film. You'll appreciate it even more that you know where he ranked My Beloved While We're Young on his list? Let's hear it. 84. That seems a little high, Jacob. I can't believe you. Jacob says, I just wanted to say you guys also turned me on to Mubi, which has been really awesome. I recently entered a long distance relationship and being able to download and view movies offline really helps on the flights between Denver and Montreal. One of Mubi's offerings right now is a Jackie Chan film, Little Big Soldier. Jackie Chan got a shout out from me at our live rap party. And this is one of his non-Hollywood films. Mubi says it's a twist on the action epic, a joy laced with slapstick combat and capped with surprisingly tragic heft. Another movie offering is Golden Door, which scooped up six prizes at the Venice Film Festival. It's a dreamy odyssey about the days of Ellis Island, stars Charlotte Gainsbourg, and has gorgeous photography by Agnes Godard. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Also, on those flights from Denver to Montreal or wherever you're going, you can use their mobile app to download films and watch offline. Our listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting. Jacob, I might forgive you for that. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. It's our first time back in the studio for a proper show since mid-December. Of course, we did have our 2015 wrap party last weekend at the main stage. Feels a little lonely in here without a live audience. That's true. Maybe we can cook one up for future show recordings, though limited seating. This week, some looking ahead and some looking back. Part one of our two-part look at the 2016 movie year. We'll share our top five most anticipated movies of the year. We'll see if some of them even come out in 2016. And then next week, part two, our top five questions of the year, whether it's maybe actors making a comeback, directors making a comeback, or just unusual actor-director pairings. We want to see how they play out. 
I don't know what they're going to be, Josh, because I haven't started my list yet. We're going to focus on part one this week. That's later in the show, along with listener picks for the best lead performance of 2015. But first, The Hateful Eight versus The Revenant. I'm a Tarantino skeptic, while Adam's no fan of Inyari 2. The Revenant made my top 10. The Hateful Eight retroactively joined Adam's. For the record, at number 11 at the moment. Just outside the top 10. We'll have to talk about that. Let's pull up our chairs alongside this frontier fire and have a nice chat. Got room for one more? I ain't too anxious to be handing out rides. Real trusting fella, huh? Not so much. Ain't no way I'm spending a couple of nights under a roof with somebody I don't know who they are. So who are you? Okay, everybody, hear this. I'm taking this woman to Hank. Rewards $10,000. That money's mine, boys. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hold on! For a while, there was a very real possibility that we weren't going to devote a segment to a new Quentin Tarantino movie. Not that we were avoiding the discussion, it was just a matter of timing. The Hateful Eight opened over Christmas... I didn't even get to see it until January 2nd, and we were off our usual show schedule leading up to our live show on January 9th. But other film critics and writers just couldn't let well enough alone. Just yesterday, as we sit taping this conversation, Josh, Laura Bogart, writing for RogerEbert.com, turned in her Tarantinoista membership card, decrying the movie's hipster misogyny. Our friend Linda Holmes, along with another friend of the show, Chris Klemek, discussed the gnarly theatrical experience of watching The Hateful Eight on the Pop Culture Happy Hour, and in the episode's notes, Holmes links to an article at DimTheHouseLights.com titled, too entertaining to be ethical, my experience with The Hateful Eight, which concludes thusly. As a film, I really, really enjoyed The Hateful Eight. As a part of the culture, I kind of hate it. As we dig back a little further, we can find Ignati Vizhinovetsky's AV Club article, The Revenant and The Hateful Eight Go to Hell, But Only One Comes Back. Spoiler alert, it's probably not the one that you think it is. And Anne Hornaday's Washington Post essay, The Hateful Eight and The Revenant Bring the Pain, But What Do We Gain? One might find it surprising that this Tarantino movie could prompt so much discourse by sheer accident, since he's so obviously not interested in saying anything that should be taken seriously, content to just be our merry cinematic prankster. We're not here to only disagree about Quentin, though, Josh. You were inspired to suggest this little Hateful Eight Revenant rumble by the Hornaday piece, so let's start there. She writes... In The Hateful Eight, an ensemble of actors gather in an isolated cabin that becomes an improbably cozy backdrop for the usual Tarantino descent into cartoonish gore and mayhem. In The Revenant, a trapper named Hugh Glass, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is mauled by a bear, his back, chest, and throat horribly mutilated. Left for dead by his fellow travelers, he literally crawls his way back to life, driven by a primal desire to avenge his presumed death. It's possible... Hornaday continues to appreciate both films, even admire them for their sheer ambition and near flawless execution. But the virtuosity on display also produces its share of deep misgivings. Whether by way of Tarantino's ironic distance or Inyari 2's artily masochistic extremes, it's genuine empathy and self reflection that get short circuited, swamped by surface values of aesthetics, technical achievement, and shocking vicarious jolts. Josh, neither of us fully agree with Hornaday. I think she's dead on about one of these two films, the one directed by Alejandro G. Inyaritu, that you listed as your number seven movie of 2015. So what is it that elevated the brash showmanship of The Revenant for you? And are your deep misgivings about Tarantino's work the same 
or different than hers. That's what's so great about these two films and a number of the pieces you mentioned is that fans of one will completely agree with the exact same criticisms mm-hmm. given to the other. So it's this is like perhaps the best example of the subjectivity of movie going film criticism in that you will see something absolutely different from what the person sitting next to you sees. Even if you agree, here's what's really interesting about both of these films, on the aesthetic is the word that's being used most commonly. I'm not sure if it's the right one, Mm -hmm. but the aesthetic richness or the cinematic, the pure filmmaking virtues and talent on display. I haven't seen many people say that one of these pictures was poorly written or poorly shot or filmed or edited in a way they couldn't understand. Almost all the complaints have been about the meaning that's been found in them Mm -hmm. and how the aesthetic is employed to communicate that meeting or not communicate that meeting. But let me ask you and tell me honestly, do you think people are really having a dialogue about the revenants meaning or only the artistry? Because I don't see people really diving into that film. No, it's it's the same thing. Hornaday gets into it as well in that she is finding a similar lack of meaning in both, things that are lacking. Mm -hmm. And I think I would say to you, and we'll hear from you, what do you find in terms of meaning in Hateful Eight? We'll get to that. Here's what I find in meaning in terms of The Revenant. And I hinted at it a little bit because it did make my top 10 list. But amidst all of this suffering that is the focus and pain and wounds and atrocities being committed against both these white explorers and the Native Americans they encounter. I mean, this is a movie of pure brutality. And you would think there's nothing else here, but I found these few moments Mm -hmm. of significant mercy to really move me because of their sparseness. And I've talked about a few of them. I think about the one moment where the younger fur trapper is going through this decimated Native American village, happens to see a woman who's kind of hiding from him. Clearly, she's starving. He hands her a piece of meat and doesn't alert the older trapper he's with who's in charge, who would do who knows what to her. Just a tiny moment of mercy. There's a later moment where DiCaprio's Hugh Glass starving comes across another Native American. In this case, this guy is better off. He's scavenging from a bison, and he shares some meat with DiCaprio. I like how those two things play off each other. I also like the mercy that's in the visual beauty of this film, sometimes just in terms of what the camera captures in capturing how this landscape is at once killing these men, but also just incredibly beautiful. And even little tiny touches like this stream that's found to be trickling between two snowy banks just when DiCaprio's character could really use some refreshment. He's in this frozen land, lack of food, lack of water, and here we have just a a tiny little symbol of mercy. I think those spoke volumes in, and I'm probably rambling here, so I'm going to go to Ignati Vishnevetsky's article in a way that he captures really well. And mind you, this is a guy who prefers the hateful eight. Yes, he does. <laughs> but what he says here about The Revenant, it's Herzog by way of Darkovsky viewpoint and transcendentalist overtones paint nature as equal parts cruel and metaphorically charged. This is a place where no man is meant to survive, but which also serves as a gateway into the mystical unknown. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, a heck of a, sentence, that's a heck of a lot of meaning for me, and it captures my experience with the film. That is how... I watched that movie and found it awe-inducing in the way that it could at once, it, it holds that dichotomy together, how life in general, but particularly in this brutal time and place, can be so overwhelmingly awful and mm. violent and careless. 
yet still have these hints of grace and mercy. Now, to flip that over to the Hateful Eight, here's where I'll ask you the same question you asked me. I found that movie devoid of it, devoid Mm -hmm. of these sorts of things. And these are elements that Tarantino has put in his other films. We can get to that down the road. But what meaning did you find in the similarly aesthetically excellent but brutal, Hmm. violent, gory, and oppressive Hateful Eight? Maybe similarly aesthetically excellent. I'm glad that you'll say that, even though I wouldn't describe the aesthetics as similar at all. And I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about the meaning I derive from the film. As accomplished, I guess, I'd say. I get you. Yeah. I want to get into the meaning a little bit, but I think I want to build up to that a little bit and just get into kind of the heart of some of these conversations and what you brought up and some of the pieces we're referencing here, because you mentioned Ignati, but he then quickly decimates that film and sort of its lack of really any meaning beyond that bare minimum, that sort of surface level that you described. And those acts of compassion, I noted those as well. When you see the movie that's so devoid of any kind of real humanity, when you get those moments, they do stand out. But I think they stand out in a very calculated way that didn't move me the way that it moved you. I do think comparing those two pieces that are directly comparing these films, the Ignati piece is superior to Hornaday's. And of course, it's easy for me to say that because I like his opinion better. But give me a little bit of credit here, Josh. He does much more accurately and specifically describe the connections between the two movies. He doesn't just tether them on this vague notion of pain, which Hornaday does. But he also notes the more interesting comparison is to talk about how unlike each other the two movies are. And I think he really nicely articulates those differences. One of them he doesn't get into, but one that I'm still confounded got lost completely in the Hornaday piece is that she says both filmmakers have long been guilty of making their audiences suffer for their art. And sure, there's a lot of blood spilled and a lot of grisly violence on display in The Hateful Eight, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit. But regardless of how entertaining you ultimately found it or the level of quality you assigned to The Hateful Eight, The Hateful Eight is a fun movie. Tarantino made an entertaining film. There's a lot of humor. I mean, The Hateful Eight basically is what you'd get if Sergio Leone decided to combine Clue and The Evil Dead into one movie. That's this film. And what's more entertaining than that? I can tell by your reaction. You can't wait to watch it for a third time, Josh. The Revenant is the one of the two movies that's an unchanging slog. We spend the entire running time watching DiCaprio suffer artfully, but suffer. And whatever humor may be found in The Revenant, if someone wants to make that case, I would say is just as strained as all of those italicized acts of compassion and the absurd stunts and the absurd, even more absurd symbolism that we get in the movie. And it's funny because there's been so much hand-wringing I've picked up over on Twitter and Facebook and Letterboxd about the vomiting blood scenes in The Hateful Eight in particular. Not really a spoiler to say that a couple characters get poisoned at one point and... It doesn't go so well for them. And this kind of fits into this argument that he just really wants to gross us out as viewers and he wants to make us squirm a little bit. And I'll be honest, I didn't have a strong reaction one way or another to those moments in The Hateful Eight. But the unnecessary distraction that some found them to be is exactly how I felt watching all of the scenes in The Revenant, like the one where DiCaprio, after he's been mauled and he finally recovers slightly and he grabs a canteen and he takes a drink of water and the water goes down his throat and out the hole in his throat. Personally, I'll take adolescent squirm-inducing scenes that at least do make me squirm a little versus similarly gross-out moments that only serve to showcase the technical achievement of the filmmaker. 
this whole narrative that we've heard spring up around The Revenant, particularly DiCaprio, about how he was really cold while making this film and he ate bugs and all this stuff, let's give him an Oscar. We saw this movie back on, I think it was December 7th, long before we were aware of any narrative whatsoever that could surround this movie. And all I could think about watching moments like that, and there are multiple moments like that where it's the blood spattering on the lens or whatever, all I could think was bravo. Bravo. That had to be so hard to pull off what dedication to your craft and dedication to showcasing the pain and the anguish. I was focused on exactly what the camera is focused on, the achievement of the effect, or in some other instances, Josh, the camera movement itself. I was never thinking about the character or the story. I was always focused on the craft when I watched The Revenant. That's fascinating because my experience of those similar scenes was Tarantino's humor and giddiness over them and over the topness does take me out of it and does make me feel like, oh, I am in a Tarantino movie because he's not just going to have them spew once. He's going to have them spew repeatedly, spew into someone's face. And we're all going to sit here and uncomfortably giggle and then talk about it afterwards, whether it was moral. I'm in a Tarantino movie. When I'm watching something happening in The Revenant, I'm there because of that mm. dedication to the craft. I'm realizing, holy crap, he has been mauled across the throat. And maybe maybe if you have a wound like that, that's what happens when you huh. drink. And I'm looking at the scars that he has and the open wounds and wondering how he's going to care for them. I was immersed in it. That's all I can tell mm -hmm. you. Obviously, I'm aware because I was we pay attention to these sort. We pay attention to these sorts of things in terms of how a filmmaker is getting an mm -hmm. effect. I'm thinking about that. But when the blood is on the camera, it's putting me there primarily because the camera hasn't cut, and that's being effective as well. When that bear comes up to the camera lens and it sticks there, so that the drool from mm -hmm. the bear drips on the camera mm -hmm. and the bear lets out a breath and it fogs the camera. Right. Of course that calls attention yes. to me for the camera in an absolutely thrilling way that makes me feel like I'm on that forest mm -hmm. floor as well. When I see something going on in The Hateful Eight, like you're talking about the vomit spewing, I'm just thinking I'm on a Tarantino set. Now, whether there's no better value to one or the other, but those are very different experiences, and I can only explain to you why I found one much more mm -hmm. affecting. You're also talking about, as if it is a higher value, that The Hateful Eight is entertaining. And I will grant you it's entertaining. That's no, why I'm my saying, first I think visit— it's interesting that we well, talk a, a about it. Well, a defense of it, a defense of it was that it. it was funny, whereas The Revenant is not funny. No, and that really it's a more, more just intellectually, Josh, I wanted to articulate that I think it's interesting that someone compared the two movies and never once pointed out that they're very different in how they function with an audience. One is deliberately okay, trying but, to entertain— and engage its audience. It's not a slog or painful to sit through at all. But you held it up as entertainment and being a fun ride as being a value. And I don't know, I'm not saying it can't be a value in a film that's mm -hmm. supposed to be considering violence, but I think that's worth questioning and worth asking whether that is necessarily a value. That's something that is supposedly, you know, the, the most intellectualized defenses of the hateful eight are tying it to dark chapters in American history. And the more Tarantino is doing this with Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards, I'm less convinced that's actually what his films are doing. But if that's how you're going to take them, then you really need to ask, okay, well, to what extent is mirth and glee and humor a value if that's what this movie is meant mm -hmm. to explore? Now, the hateful eight is surface entertaining because Tarantino is so skilled, 
very funny. The dialogue is so well written. He can craft a story that keeps winding around. And that was my initial experience. I had a, a mildly positive experience of the film coming out of it. And so the why more... isn't that the dominant experience? Why do you have to then intellectualize it and turn it into something where you have to convince yourself that it wasn't really as good as it is? Because then we wouldn't be here, Adam. <laughs> That's what this is all about. I don't know. I'm usually trying to articulate the experience I had sitting in the theater. No, you repeat. You go back for second viewings. You think about things afterwards. We have conversations. That's the whole point of this enterprise. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we just went in and went out out and said, I did not talk myself out of it. I went in a second time excited because I went to see it in actual 70 millimeter Mm -hmm. at the music box, thinking I was going to see a film that I had enjoyed, a Tarantino film I had enjoyed, the second one after really liking Django Unchained. And the word that came to my mind, slog. Hmm. It felt like a slog the second time because I knew the narrative pyrotechnics. I knew the plot changes where it was going. And I sat down to say, okay, what might he really be doing Mm -hmm. here? If this is going to be a film that's held up as a top 10 lister, as one of Tarantino's best, as an important work of art, it needs to be more than just entertaining. That's fine if it does just want to be entertaining, but that's not how it's been talked about. So I went back to see what more is he doing here. Mm -hmm. And I came away thinking that there's two possibilities, really, that this is just And it's fine if it is. At best, The Hateful Eight is a nihilistic shrug. It's just a, we have a horrible, violent history. I'm going to remind you of that in my most entertaining way possible. And we'll all go home and laugh about it. Possibly that's what the movie is at its best. If you're going to take its moral framework seriously and Mm -hmm. explore that, and maybe we can get into it. I think it's something more akin to an argument for auteurist vigilantism as the moral high ground. And that's where I think we have a problem, where Tarantino is pointing out, lifting up his movies and these revenge movies whose end point Mm -hmm. is just killing the guy who deserves it. I think that's a dead end. Hmm. And I don't think it's a very interesting dead end. I don't think it's a very sophisticated moral framework or, you know, Dana Stevens on the Slate Culture Gabfest, when they got into this, she was talking about her relationship with Tarantino's films too. And at one point she just said, you know, She thinks he lacks a moral imagination. And I think that does capture it well, where even when some of these movies are trying to play around with ideas, like here, Justice, I think is definitely one that's explored. Mm -hmm. I just don't know if he has. He has the filmmaking faculty to make that an entertaining ride. I don't know if he has the the idea faculty to make it a very revealing one or sophisticated Mm. one. Or maybe there are some critics who insist on his version of morality fitting into a neater box than he's willing to fit it into. I want to talk a little bit more about that artistry, and I'll counter a little bit to what you were just saying in that the way Hornaday and others talk about these films in terms of kind of that surface value, that they're both so well-crafted, whatever that really does mean. As much craft as there may be in The Hateful Eight, It functioned completely differently for me, obviously. Inyaritu's camera is constantly moving. It's always directing our vision. There are a few moments where the camera settles, and there's one shot in particular I absolutely love from The Revenant that we might get into. But the experience of watching The Revenant for me was one of seeing whatever Inyaritu wanted me to see in that given moment. The intent, I can only imagine, is to make this immersive experience that you had, a complete sensory, visceral experience. But the cumulative effect on it for me was I ended up being completely passive the entire time. There was never any work to be done by the viewer intellectually or just as a watcher because he was doing all the work for me with the camera. Contrast that with Tarantino and his visual approach. 
those 70 millimeter wide shots, mostly confined. That's where the Evil Dead part comes in a little bit, I guess, clue too. But it's this cabin out there, Minnie's haberdashery. It's all in one frame. These still shots take up the entirety of that venue. And there's even a line at one point about it being sort of like the United States, right, where it's kind of like separate territories and you've got your dividers. The river here might be dividing this land from this land. And that's exactly what it is. That's how we begin to regard that setting as we take in those frames. The location of every character, the movement of every character, the motivation of every character is crucial in every single scene. So my eyes are constantly scanning. My mind is constantly engaged. I'm anticipating because I think Tarantino wants his audience to be active and engaged, and he allows us to be part of the process. I never felt part of the process watching The Revenant. And I did mention one shot I liked in particular. There is a moment of real wonder, and it's in a landscape shot. I don't know that there's much beauty in the landscape at all here, to disagree with something you said earlier. But Going to something I think you maybe said in your written review of this film, you made a comment somewhere about it being captured in a way that's almost primordial, and I really agree with that. My favorite moment in the movie speaks to that. There's this long shot, a distance shot, where you see a figure moving closer to the frame, slowly. And as I'm watching it, I think I'm watching, and maybe, you know, I'm just more blind than you, Josh, or other viewers. But as I was watching it, you don't know what the figure is or who the figure is, though you kind of assume it's DiCaprio. And there's something about the whiteness of it and the flowing nature of the landscape. I actually thought it was DiCaprio's character moving in water. It was like a lake. And there was this ripple effect as he was getting closer to us. And it turns out, in fact, no, he's just on land getting closer to us. And it was one moment of ambiguity in a movie that otherwise has none. In contrast to The Hateful Eight, which going back to some of these conversations that all these people are having about this film, there's a lot of ambiguity because we're all reading the movie and interpreting it in vastly different ways. I don't think there's much room for different interpretation for The Revenant. This is a little separate, too, and you're going to disagree with it as being something valuable because you just had the experience, and it obviously didn't really woo you over to Tarantino's side. But there was something about seeing it in 70mm at the music box, packed house, perfect projection, perfect sound. And that notion, again, of being a passive viewer versus an active viewer, I was also not an isolated viewer, which is how I felt watching The Revenant. It was always this one-on-one or one-to-one dialogue with the director imposing his images on me. With The Hateful Eight, I was engaged in this experience that I felt like everyone around me was having, whether that was true or not. We are potentially studying the frame differently. We're interpreting the content differently. Again, that ambiguity. But we're all engaged and we're all invested in seeing what surprises await, what revelations will arise. We want to see where the story and these characters are going to go. And there's an electricity to that. There's a bond you feel like you're having with your fellow audience members and connection, which is what I think this movie is about on some level as well. How these people with all their faults and all their prejudices and their differing values, in some cases vastly differing values, how they interact with each other, how sometimes their sense of justice, to talk about what you mentioned earlier, how that deviates from each other and from civilized society, all that factors in to that sort of communal experience. That was something very pleasurable for me, seeing it with that group of people at the music box. If you're found guilty, the people of Red Rock will hang you in the town square, and as the hangman, I will perform the execution. And... If all those things end up taking place, that's what civilized society 
calls justice. However, if the relatives and the loved ones of the person you murdered were outside that door right now, and after busting down that door, they drug you out into the snow and hung you up by the neck, that would be frontier justice. To me, it doesn't matter what you did. When I hang you, I'll get no satisfaction from your death. It's my job. I hang you in Red Rock. I move on to the next town. I hang someone else there. Yeah, it, it's more entertaining. It's more of a ride. It's got punchlines. It's got things that serve the audience. You know, it, it's looking for ways to entertain the audience, and that's absolutely fine. But I don't see how that can be held against the revenant. I don't think in the story has anything to do with being yeah, more absolutely. entertained. It's, I was more caught up in the narrative but, of the story. Absolutely, the because it's a whodunit. It made it that it's, way. I mean, it's a whodunit. The Revenant is is a mood piece. It's an ethereal. Mm-hmm. It's asking you to do the exact sort of things you resisted so much is not to obsess over what the director is trying to do to you, but to soak it in. I'm absolutely baffled, to be honest, that you could watch something like The Revenant and say that it has very few scenes of beauty. I mean, mm-hmm. I would have been I was glad it could have been shorter. But I didn't mind because I could have just sat back and watched some of the nature imagery. There, there's it's a, a harsh landscape, of, though. There's a, what about that valley of, of trees that somehow have these mossy green spikes? I think that's what struck me as primordial. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they find so many different little areas. It's not just a white, snowy landscape. And the rivers and the creeks that – I mean, I was just enraptured by all that. It absolutely – I mean, it just baffles me that you, you didn't – at least enjoy that element of it. On the flip side, mm-hmm. completely enjoyed the 70 millimeter in The Hateful Eight. I thought that was brilliant. I went into it thinking, knowing somewhat of the story. Now, why is he choosing to use that for this, you know, one room piece? And right away I saw, oh, because I can see that when I get the POV shot from Samuel Jackson's character, when he comes into this cabin, he can see in the near left of the screen, Tim Roth's character right there. He can see in the middle center, Bruce Dern's character doing something else. And then he can see Michael Madsen's in the far right. They're each taking up a different plane. Mm -hmm. As you said, they're each doing something different. It's important to watch all of them at once because we're suspicious. And that is thrilling and hugely engaging. And the way that Tarantino uses the camera throughout to emphasize that Mm -hmm. um, is just brilliant. And what also it does, what also it does is make these really interesting performances because it is as much as Reservoir Dogs a stage play, not just because of the constrained setting or the suspicion Mm -hmm. that sets in or the plot, but really because the actors are constantly on as an actor would be on a theatrical stage. They may not be in the focal moment of a given scene, but very likely they're in the background. They've got to be in character and they're possibly doing something that matters. So that was just a formal choice uh, that I thought worked really well and he carried it throughout the film. And, uh, you know, is probably a very big reason why I came out of the first time thinking that was a fun ride. Mm -hmm. Second time, what was that used for beyond the things we talked about? I think those are all good things, but what else was the movie doing? What was it interested in? What was it saying to me mm-hmm. about the things we're showing? And that's when it just kept getting thinner and thinner. Yeah, it's interesting. Part of our disagreement about this film comes down to, I think, 
the desire on your part to want to imbue the film with more meaning than it has. Because I'm not that's sure how it's being discussed. Okay, I mean, if you want to defend it as the discussion, well, I don't go in thinking about the discussion. So you didn't either. You so if you want to totally defend blind. it as an entertainment nihilistic shrug, okay, well, I'll, I, I'll I give you that. Use that word. But why can't it be something along that spectrum with those performances, with just watching the way Tarantino maneuvers people and objects in space? Why can't That's that be all, enough? That, that is enough. That yeah, is enough. It but is. I think its attitude as well is not very interesting if it's just giving me the shrug mm-hmm. about all the violence it's displaying. Okay. The craft is one thing, and I appreciate that. But then the subject matter that it's choosing, it begs questioning of why are we why is this his choice? He could have done everything we're just talking about with the widescreen seven millimeter cinematography. He could have done that with a period you know, chamber drama, romantic drama. Why did he choose these people, mm-hmm. these acts of violence to be the focal point? I yeah. think that's a fair question to ask. And it so is. that reaches me to the next level. And I find that, well, I don't really see why he chose it besides to say, well, it, it's fun. I like filming it. And my attitude is that, you know, people are pretty horrible. America has been a pretty horrible country. Mm-hmm. Let's bring all of this together, including the racism, including the misogyny. Get some laughs out of it. Yeah. Make people feel uncomfortable about Sometimes it. Sometimes that's enough kill, with art. Kill everyone so that we can say this is what they all deserve and right. then call it a day. Okay, well, that's that's nihilistic, and I don't find that that interesting. Okay. It's limited. It's I, thin. I do obviously find it more interesting, but let me at least attempt, though it won't sway you at all, especially because it's a completely personal reaction to the film, what I latched onto a little bit more than just the visual style and the performances and getting engaged by the story. There is something fascinating about the way he weaves through this violent film. The respect and the solemnity, I think, for lack of a better word, that various characters have for something like that object in this case, which is the Lincoln letter. This letter that Samuel L. Jackson's character has that he says is an authentic letter from Abraham Lincoln that was written to him during the Civil War. The way they sort of genuflect in front of that letter, it made me think back to moments with objects in other Quentin Tarantino films. You could go back to something like The Suitcase, maybe in Pulp Fiction, but more than that, The Watch, obviously, that drives everything Bruce Willis does in that film. There is this sense that amidst all this chaos and all this insanity and all the horror of life in this country and the way people treat each other, the fact that people can have that kind of genuine expression of emotion about something that they deem to be authentic that's what ultimately they're always searching for. And that fits in with this larger scheme that we see from Tarantino, this larger notion of America, where life is play acting, just like it is in every Quentin Tarantino film. Everybody's playing a role. We get to reinvent ourselves day to day, scene to scene, moment to moment. Maybe there's a different audience. Maybe there's a different setting. It doesn't matter. But that's something he's constantly playing with. And so even in this moment where we get people having that shared connection of intimacy even over something that is fabricated whether it's fake or not it's still just this this letter it's ultimately just a letter from one man to another man but that they can have that kind of reaction to it does say something and it makes me think of a moment like the one in Reservoir Dogs Josh between Mr. Orange and Mr. White we talked a lot about how much we appreciate that film during our Sacred Cow discussion but also those moments where the men have this 
brotherly bond. Some argue it's more than a brotherly bond, and perhaps it is. But everything about that situation is completely inauthentic. There's no reason those two men in that moment should be having that moment, and yet they do. And those moments, just like the moments of compassion or mercy that you talked about in The Revenant, those stand out in Tarantino's films for me and are much more moving, ultimately, than the kind of calculated ones I see in an Inyari 2 film. Man, I wish, I really wish that Lincoln letter worked for me as it did for you and as I know it has for other viewers and as it clearly, <laughs> clearly Tarantino wanted it to work for the movie. I mean, this is, it's a screenwriting device. I yeah. mean, bordering on contrived. Oh, yeah. And, you know, maybe that's part of the reason it just wasn't quite as affecting. I think the other reason is that it doesn't quite get at what you're talking about in those other Tarantino films, which is the missing element here in The Hateful Eight. And it's some sort of recognition of sorrow within this whole world that he depicts and I would say often revels in. That hmm. that there's a there's a flip side to this violence, even for someone who deserves it. Even you don't if you're think getting, that's expressing that? Even if you're getting the right guy. I think you're I think you see that a lot. You nailed it in Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. That's where you see it in that relationship is is a sorrow over something being lost there. You see it in in Pulp Fiction, I think in in Uma Thurman's eyes, mm-hmm. you see it, and also bringing up the watch. When yeah, I was thinking about Walken. this too, that is that is a very clear element where you get a sense of sorrow. And in Django Unchained, I mean, just the attention the camera pays to things like shackles in that film is so historically based for a Tarantino picture. That's something that I think The Hateful Eight is missing too. Is that sense of history? Jackie Brown, it's all over Robert mm-hmm. Forster's face. Just you know, a sense of sorrow that there's sadness to this violence that we're experiencing in this world we're living in. And it is not there in The Hateful Eight. And if you're going to put the burden of Mm -hmm. carrying that and carrying that meaning on the Lincoln letter, I just think it's too much for that conceit to bear, especially when, you know, you described it as a shared connection of intimacy over the Lincoln letter. Mm -hmm. That moment is a tiny, tiny little second which is what makes it powerful well see you're making my revenant argument aren't you because of the the small acts of mercy are are what make it powerful to me unfortunately they're overridden by all the constant moments of showmanship exactly because (laughs) that final moment over the Lincoln letter is completely overridden by the gleeful murderous cackling that the same characters do there's no shared connection there there's no reconciliation they're just the last two I wouldn't say it's reconciliation that would be too simple that would be too tidy (laughs) but that's what the Lincoln letter suggests. No. That's what that conceit wants it, to be. I think it expresses whereas, more nuance than that, John. Whereas the nuanced ways that Inyaritu and Lubezki, through the camera, work in grace and mercy within the natural world that The Revenant takes place. They're not shoving a theme or a conceit or a screenwriting device. All they're doing is panning to a trickling creek and saying, Look at this. This is offering refreshment. Or they're even, here's a shared point between the two films, snow falling and characters who are almost out of their minds looking up, sticking their tongues out and letting a flake fall. That is a moment of mercy and mm-hmm. grace that's natural within what's happening in that film. And the other ones I mentioned too, over sharing food and moments of communion that come as they might in that scenario, mm-hmm. rather than bringing in some sort of letter conceit to wrap things up at the end. 
you're right. And Yari too is a prophet. He's there with a lesson to impart to us, Josh, and he's going to make us all better people if we just appreciate how much suffering he went through and endured to bring his art to I us. I never made that argument. No, I know, but that's the argument I see when I watch this film, unfortunately. The Hateful Eight and The Revenant are currently out in wide release. I can't believe we didn't even get into the misogyny issue. Which we could talk about for another 20 minutes. You know what? Let, let's. Let's. And also his use of the N-word. Because I don't think we should let either of those things go. Not because I have an absolute stance on them, but just because I'd hate to let him slide without... I want to hear what listeners say, basically, is mm-hmm. why I want to bring it up. Um, both things registered more strongly for me and troubled me the second time. Because the first time they were part of that entertainment, because they're used as punchlines, even as you might say he's questioning it, or in the case of Jennifer Jason Lee's character, and she gives a great performance, by the way, she overcomes a character who's largely designed to be a punchline because she's repeatedly punched. That's how those hits are played. They're played for laughs. Oh, we can um, get into it. And, yeah. and I, I just, you know, when you're using it that way, I think it's fair to say, this really isn't adding anything or saying anything thoughtful about how women were treated. Even more so, I would say, the use of the N-word. I mean, I I, I would <laughs> just ask— Why does it have to be saying something thoughtful about the times in which they Because there's in. a responsibility that comes with using a word like that and that comes with repeatedly showing a woman being punched and expecting the audience to laugh at I think it. the responsibility is to provoke a reaction and to make you think about a whole host of different questions, all of which he's I not, thought about during those scenes. He's not making us think about anything. So if get, I could give get, no credit if for the I could get that he one observation from the film about race relations, just one for every 10 uses of the N-word, I'd be happy. But see, here's the thing. You get to say, I want an observation that tells me something insightful that I've never heard before or some other movie has given me before. And I think that's an unrealistic bar to set for any film or any artist. Sometimes they're going to so give you... So what is the purpose in using it repeatedly? The, in using what repeatedly? The N-word, repeatedly, for laughs and for punchlines. I'm going to be honest with you, Josh. I have plenty to say about the issue of misogyny. Haven't thought a second. Okay, well the then N-word. let's go to that. What's what's the purpose of repeatedly punching the Jennifer Jason Lee character for laughs? Well, I think that does come down to what I value sometimes in an artist, and I certainly think Tarantino is an artist, and I certainly think he is largely succeeding in this, which is provocation. And what that ultimately provokes, I'll get into a little bit, but I'll start by saying that I think the key moment that happens with Jennifer Jason Lee's character, and first, I'm sorry, I'll backtrack for a second and insult the Revenant a little bit more just by saying for all the hand-wringing about how weak of a female character Jennifer Jason Lee apparently is, at least she is flesh and blood, and at least she has some agency. The Revenant has no female characters except for not the manic pixie dream girl, but actually the magical spirit earth woman, which is the dead wife that we only see in these visions where we're basically supposed to buy into his quest somehow being, I don't know, more noble, this vengeance quest because of his Native American wife and son. I think that's really troubling, actually. But Well, I think that moment, was tied into the whole level of which the title implies is is this guy alive or not? I mean, that's that's one secondary reading of the film that's really interesting, actually, and that plays um, a big part in that, but, but go ahead. I think the key moment, at least it was for me, and how I processed those scenes with her and those moments with Jennifer Jason Lee is that scene right after she's punched for the first time by Kurt Russell's character, who is the bounty hunter, of course, who is taking her in, and it's that wink and that smile that she gives 
to Samuel L. Jackson's character oh, sitting across moment. from her. It cues the audience in on the fact that this character knows how to take care of herself. It immediately shows us we don't really have to worry about her. But more than that, it shows us, Josh, that this little routine where she says something vulgar or stupid or mean that gets Kurt Russell's character all riled up is exactly that. It's a routine. That smile, I think, is our clue to that. Like every other character in this film, like every other character, as I've argued, maybe in every Quentin Tarantino film, she's playing a role. She's playing a character. And the more she plays that character, the more she plays into his expectations of who she is, the more he'll fit nicely into her scheme. It's a calculation. That only becomes apparent to us as the story develops. So it makes those moments where she's hit really troubling. And I'll admit, I stifled a laugh the first time it happened because the impulse is definitely there to react. She's kind of snickering and he shuts her up. The timing of it is comedic. And I stifled it precisely because I felt bad about having that reaction in that moment. Now, did I almost laugh as some audience members I know do during those scenes because of the comedy Tarantino is aiming for or because it's uncomfortable to watch a woman be hit like that and we often react to discomfort by laughing? I think it's a combination of both, Josh, and I think what it does ultimately, though, again, you have to see how it fits into the larger scheme of the film. You have to place those moments in your reactions within that larger context and reconsider them, which I do think by the end of the film, Tarantino forces us to do, or at least he did force me to do. That article I referenced at the start from Laura Bogart, she talks about the consequences of living in a culture that doesn't value women's lives. And I think we just fundamentally disagree about how we read a key image in the film. I think if you take all the violence and blood and death we witness in The Hateful Eight, there's only one image, Josh, one human image that the camera insists that we inspect, that the camera insists that we scrutinize. And it doesn't let us delight in it even for a second. And that's the image of a woman suffering. It's a powerful image that stopped me and the crowd I was with cold. If you want to argue, okay, but there are characters on screen who are delighting in that suffering. Yes, exactly. That informs the horror of the moment. There are no heroes in this movie. There's no moral core, whether man or woman. Their delight is not ours, nor is it, I'd argue, the filmmakers, because the irony, as I said, I think is so explicit in that moment. And because of how it's shot, it demands our gaze. That's something that's provocative in an interesting way. So it's OK that she gets punched around because she can take it. We learn that her character can take it. I well, mean, that, that's not that's not really well, you missed enough everything for me, I said right after not, that, Josh. But, and, it's okay. al- and it's also, you know, the movie, it's what the movie is doing, no matter what you may suspect that the filmmaker intends or wants the audience to think. It's often what the movie is doing, how it's playing its beats, what it's lingering on or showing. I'm not saying that this is a case where because these are vile characters, the movie is vile. Absolutely not. Depiction is not endorsement. Completely agree and understand that. But sometimes it is the manner of depiction that can You can sense the movies, if not endorsement, where its thrill is, where it is getting its verve and the verve of the hateful eight. I I mean, this is why it's a nihilistic shrug at best, and I'll I'll accept it as that. But any sort of defense of this is saying something thoughtful or insightful about the morality of violence. I can't go that far with it. Or the treatment of women. No, I can't go far with that either. Or the use. We're just completely, we're ignorant. No, I'm just telling you my reading of the movie is that I'm not finding any sort of depth or substance or 
you know, I'll throw race relations into that as well. If it wants to be this throw up our hands, let's have fun because things have all gone to hell and everyone deserves to die. And we're going to do it in an entertaining way and a very artistic. He's Tarantino is an artist. Talented way. Okay, the movie does a good job of that. I can't give it much more credit. Let's try this again. The Hateful Eight and The Revenant are currently out in wide release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. The Oscars have made their nominations for the best acting of 2015. Do listeners agree? The Film Spotting poll is next, where we'll also ask you to choose among three of the most anticipated films of 2016. Stay with us. We want to jump in here briefly with a word about the Vermont College of Fine Art MFA in Film. Vermont College of Fine Art offers a two-year student-designed, project-driven graduate program of professional mentorships for your scripts, fiction and nonfiction filmmaking, also for your hybrid and transmedia projects. It's exciting, affordable, and intense. You can refine your creative vision as you develop intensely personal stories, and you're doing this as part of an independent practice. Visit vcfa.edu film. We're also brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform that gives you sites that look professionally designed regardless of your skill level with no coding required. They offer intuitive and easy-to-use tools, state-of-the-art technology to power your site, that ensure security and stability, and they are trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Right now, you get a free domain if you sign up for one year, and to start your free trial, you don't even need a credit card. You can do this at squarespace.com and just use the offer code FILM. We recently got a testimonial from Taylor Cole, who I think we can call a friend of the show now after featuring him prominently in our live show from Main Stage. He was a listener who shared his favorite scene of the year from the crowd after Tyler ran around and got the mic <laughs> to him. And his pick was one of those scenes, the Brian Wilson music scene from Love and Mercy. Taylor thanks us for the discount code for Squarespace. He says, I just started a master's in music education at Northwestern University in Evanston, and one of my fall courses had me creating an online music teaching portfolio to showcase my work teaching, performing, and arranging in my current courses and previous teaching experience. I think maybe we need to get Taylor to orchestrate our next live Massacre Theater musical. What do that you would think, be Josh? fun, yes. We're going to a musical now? We went from musical number to just yeah, a musical. Yeah, a full-blown musical. Why not? A little bit of dancing as well. <laughs> that would be really ugly. Taylor continues, if any film spotting listeners happen to be high school administrators looking for choral or orchestra directors in the next year or so, they can now check out tcmusiced.net for lesson plans, teaching videos, and assorted curiosities related to my budding career as a music teacher. A bit more from Taylor here. When I had to design and post a website for a music teaching class, Squarespace immediately seemed like the best option after hearing about it on Film Spotting for years, and it did not disappoint. Despite having no coding experience, I had no trouble designing my site and portfolio, and my professor ended up commenting on just how professional-looking it ended up being. I got 100% on the assignment, and I look forward to expanding the site 
website with more material from my remaining time at Northwestern, as well as my future teaching. Well, thanks for that, Taylor. Thanks for coming to the live show, too, and being a part of that. When you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, as Taylor did, make sure to use the offer code FILM to get a special offer on your first purchase. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hello there, Film Spotting Mothership. Allison Wilmore here from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast with the long-lost Matt Singer. Back after a break to join me for a discussion of S. Craig Zoller's genre-defying horror western, Bone Tomahawk. And after we've talked troglodytes and vivisections, we'll talk paternity leave viewing and what to look forward to at this year's Sundance Film Festival. To listen, search for us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Filmspotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable. The art house is now in your house. I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. Give me the code. One. Two. Three. I don't know it. I'm telling you. Get on the jet to Tokyo and ask the chairman. I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. Welcome back to Film Spotting. I'm not sure who planned to follow up that just riveting entertaining conversation about The Revenant and The Hateful Eight with the sad news about the passing of Alan Rickman, but we did want to take a moment to acknowledge that passing. You, of course, heard him there as the immortal Hans Gruber in Die Hard opposite Bruce Willis. We heard some great takes on the legacy of Alan Rickman, including this from our friend Michael Phillips, who says the reports of Rickman's death Thursday morning cast a shadow on the announcement of the 88th Academy Award nominations, upstaged them even. This was grim, poetic justice incarnate. Rickman, best known for Hans Gruber in Die Hard and Severus Snape in all eight Harry Potter pictures, never received a single Oscar nomination himself. That is a little hard to believe. We also wanted to share these thoughts from Adam Sternberg at Vulture. He's talking about Rickman's Hans Gruber here. Simply put, in this one role, Rickman did what few actors in film history have managed to do. He broke the rules, then wrote new rules for everyone after him to follow. Hans Gruber isn't the faceless, disposable thug of, say, the Dirty Harry franchise. He isn't the sneering, scenery-gobbling Bennett and Commando. He isn't Blofeld, scarred and grimacing and stroking a furry white cat. Rickman brought Shakespearean-level acting chops to a film about a New York cop trapped in a building full of bad guys. And he introduced to action films the notion that the villain can be just as compelling, if not more so, than the hero. And that, in the hands of the right kind of enormously skilled actor, he can be a figure of devilish complexity. It goes without saying, perhaps, that actors as enormously skilled as Rickman turn out to be in very short supply. Now, I know that when we did our Sacred Cow discussion of Die Hard a while back, I don't know, at least a year ago, I think it was, that we had nothing but praise for Rickman as Hans Gruber, though I wonder if we really did give him enough credit and weren't distracted by some of the other things that we were responding to in that film and maybe some of the surprises since we saw it the first time. We always knew R- 
Rickman was great as Hans Gruber, and he just further confirmed that. A few other notable roles from Rickman, of course, Truly, Madly, Deeply, where he played Jamie, the Sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He was in Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility. Love him as Dr. Lazarus in Galaxy Quest. He was, of course, also in Love Actually and Alice in Wonderland, where he played the Blue Caterpillar. Kevin Smith's Dogma, 1999, he played Metatron in that film. And I'll point this out if you're a fan of Alan Rickman or you're interested in learning more about him. Just earlier tonight, actually, I heard Kevin Smith's tribute to Rickman on his Hollywood Babylon podcast. Now, regardless of what you think of Kevin Smith as a filmmaker or even as a talker, It's a really fascinating listen. It runs about 20 minutes, and it's in their current episode, the January 15th show. I want to say it starts right around the 57-minute mark. And he talks about the experience of casting him, of directing him, and just working with him. But he goes into even greater detail about what kind of man Alan Rickman was when he wasn't in front of the camera or wasn't on the stage. And that's something I haven't been reading a lot of these tributes. I don't know if that's something that's really come out. I've never had a sense of Alan Rickman beyond all those different faces we're used to seeing and those voices we're used to seeing on screen. So to listen to Kevin Smith get really emotionally worked up, actually talking about their friendship, how they got together whenever he was in town or Kevin Smith would go to London and the just manner that he had as a gentleman was really moving for me to listen to. Yeah, and it's not like they made a series of films no, together either. I mean, this is, yeah, a one movie thing. The the thing about Rickman's, you know, performance as Snape in the Harry Potter series, too, you could almost argue that that's a case, as much as I love the books, where he brought so much more to the understanding of that character in his performance that was there on the page. Great character on the page, but just became uh, much more layered and uh, complicated and ambivalent on the screen was my experience Mm -hmm. of it. And, you know, it's Rickman had everything to do with that. Rickman's final film performance, speaking of those voices, may be appropriate that it's only his voice. He will return as the Blue Caterpillar in Alice Through the Looking Glass. That is coming in May. David Bowie, of course, as well, a very notable passing and someone we can talk about as a film actor, The Hunger, the Tony Scott movie, Labyrinth, probably most famous for his performance as Jareth the Goblin King. Pontius Pilate, that performance in The Last Temptation of Christ, the Martin Scorsese film, I do genuinely really love that performance. And I love him in The Man Who Fell to Earth, the Nicholas Rogue film from 1976, which was the movie that closed out our 70s sci-fi marathon a few years back here. Well, maybe more like seven or eight years back here on Film Spotting. Really fascinating, trippy film with a fascinating, trippy performance from Bowie. I just saw The Last Temptation of Christ for the first time last year, and he is... So it's just one scene, right? Doesn't yeah, he just I think have it the, is. The, the, yeah. And man, does he... He has a better grasp on that wobbly material than, you know, Harvey Keitel for sure, and mm-hmm. he even, I'd say, Willem Dafoe in a lot of ways. So yeah, he brings really good. otherworldliness even to Pontius Pilate that's quite effective there. And we are featuring some music from... Bowie here in this week's show. In less depressing news, we wanted to share that we are giving away passes for the movie 45 Years, which is opening here in Chicago this weekend. Information about how to enter is available at filmspotting.net, but basically an admit to pass that you can use during the run of its engagement here in Chicago. Just go to filmspotting.net for more info. And well worth your time. Can we spoil our review next week and say that we both love, <laughs> we both this, love movie this movie and you should go see you it? You hadn't seen it when we did our top 10. It was my number three of the year. Yeah, it, it would not have cracked the top 10, but it's it's probably, I think it's up there in the top 20. It's, it's really something. We did also want to acknowledge everybody who came out to the rap party, alluded to it off the top of the show here, but... 
we look back on the year that was in cinema with various categories, including, you know, best action scene and funniest moment and scene of the year. And that was our third one at the main stage, fifth one that we've done. And I don't know how everyone else felt about it. We got some feedback over email from people who were in attendance, the vibe we were getting from the crowd. But I think we get a little bit better at it, hopefully each time. And that was my favorite one to do and the most fun I had on stage yeah. anyway. So I don't know what everyone else thought of it, but I had a good time and maybe that's all that matters. No, I, ha I had the same experience. It, it, once we got rolling, I'm always nervous beforehand, but once we got rolling, it was it was a great crowd. Mm -hmm. all, all of the crowds at the live shows we've done are engaged, you know, shouting out in agreement over yeah. titles or Saturday anything like helped. that. But maybe it was Saturday. Saturday night, but this crowd was especially locked in and letting us know how they felt and a couple audience members sharing pics. So it was a blast. It was. And we'll let you know more information about our next live show right now. Not scheduled, though we are anticipating doing another live show this summer. And maybe we can get into a routine of having at least two a year, one in the summertime, in addition to the rap party. Our thanks again to everyone who helped make that happen at Mainstage and from WBEZ, including Golden Joe Dassault and Tyler Green. Do you remember how Alice wasn't always in Wonderland? She fell down, 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 deep in a hole. Right, well, I wasn't always in room. I'm like Alice. I was a little girl named Joy. Nah. And I lived in a house with my mom and my dad. You would call them grandma and grandpa. What house? A house. It was in the world. And there was a backyard, and we had a hammock. And we would swing in the hammock, and we would eat ice cream. A TV house? No, Jack, a real house, not TV. Are you even listening to me? Sam always knows how to find the perfect transition clips referencing Alice in Wonderland from the movie Room, the film that we heard most often from listeners over the course of the past two or three months who... Just couldn't believe that we hadn't made time to see the movie yet. And then when it came time for our top 10 roundtable, they were incredulous that between four critics, not one critic made room for it in their top 10. It turns out Michael and Scott Tobias both thought the movie was just OK and it didn't really come close to their top 10. And we hadn't seen it at the time. We have now both seen room and... We, think we both it's like it. Okay. Yeah, we're probably with Michael we're and gonna, Scott. We're not going to really like it a little more anybody than you. here. Yeah, it really isn't in that top 30 for me that really were the contenders for my top 10 overall, but a good film with some really good performances, including Brie Larson there. Yeah, she's Nominated great. last week for Best Actress by the Academy, and she is regarded right now by many as the frontrunner, though relatively few moviegoers have seen the film. It's currently grossed only about $5 million after three and a half months in limited release. We'll see how that affects our poll results. We asked you a couple weeks ago to name your favorite lead performance of 2015, and we gave you a smattering of options here that are, some of them, among our favorites of the year, maybe for one or both of us, or they're also just in contention if you pay attention to any of those Oscar prognosticators, which we don't pay that much attention to, but what little we do know, we factored into this poll a little bit. And probably now's a good time to say, Josh, before we share the results, that we had promised during that live show that this week's top five was going to be our favorite performances of 2015. And we really just thought, you know what? The rap party kind of put a wrap on 2015 for us. Let's move on, especially since there's so much to be excited about in 2016. Yeah, I, ho I hope we'll be forgiven for that. Maybe we'll get to a little performance talk if we do end up considering the Oscars around the time of the ceremony. But yeah, that's up in the air, too. So we'll, we'll see, see how that goes down the road. Let's share the results now. The options for best lead performance of 2015 are Matt Damon in The Martian. He was nominated. Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant, also nominated. Michael Fassbender and Steve Jobs, three for three by the Academy. 
Michael B. Jordan in Creed, sadly, not nominated by the Academy. Brie Larson in Room. Rooney Mara in Carol, nominated, though nominated as a supporting actress. Brie Larson was a lead there. Saoirse Ronan in Brooklyn, she was nominated. Charlize Theron in Mad Max Fury Road, not nominated or other if you don't like any of those options, you can go with whatever you want. Write him or her in. Josh, how did it come out? Most of the men are at the bottom here. In last place was Matt Damon in The Martian with 4%. Michael B. Jordan received 5%. And Michael Fassbender, 7%. That kind of hurts. Film spotting men is champion, wow. Michael Fassbender. Sorry, Michael. Other received 9% of the vote right about in the middle here. Then we have Saoirse Ronan with 11%, Leonardo DiCaprio with 14%, Charlize Theron got 15%, the two at the top, Brie Larson, 17% of the vote, which means Rooney Mara won with 18% of the vote. Very close. Yeah, very close. And I think it does just add to the proof that 2015 really was the year of the female performance. If you break down the voting, 60%-ish was the women and only about 30% went to the men. Some of the other votes that were written in Nina Haas for Phoenix, Charlotte Rampling for 45 years and Emily Blunt for Sicario. We also got this bit of feedback from Corey Kraft in Birmingham, Alabama. I know no one has seen it. I only caught it on vacation in New York City over the holidays, but the best performance of 2015 was delivered by Charlotte Rampling in 45 years and by quite a margin. In any case, leading ladies had a much better year at the cinemas this year than their male counterparts there were comparatively very few great performances from men this year. Only Fassbender and Jordan would be in contention for me. While there are a ton of great female performances left off this poll, not only Rampling, but Lily Tomlin and Grandma, Belle Powley in The Diary of a Teenage Girl, Elizabeth Moss in Queen of Earth, Katana Kiki Rodriguez and Maya Taylor in Tangerine, and Nina Haas in Phoenix. Since we aren't getting into our favorite performances of the year, I guess this is an opportunity for us to share a little bit of our thoughts by announcing how we would have voted in this poll. Josh, how did you vote? I still would have gone with other for Kate Blanchett. Really? For Carol? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I, it's kind of bizarre to me that that one's just been left out of the conversation. It, she is nominated by the Academy, so she made that cut. But Carol, you know, not getting Best Picture either is mm-hmm. really weird. So her performance seems to have not driven the movie over the top for sure. But I thought it yeah. was, you know possibly the very best of the year. I don't know if I've made that final choice yet, but for me, it was amazing. Wow. She is amazing. She's virtually always amazing, which I think may work to her detriment, at Maybe least that's by what it is. some idiots like me who at some point just start to consider her almost like we consider Meryl Streep and say, well, of course she gave a fantastic performance and we don't necessarily give it as much credit as we should. I guess at least that's my excuse right now. I'm actually with Corey. For me, it had really come down to either Nina Haas for the movie Phoenix or Charlotte Rampling. And in all of the ballots I submitted picks for, whether it was Chicago Film Critics or The Village Voice, I did mention Charlotte Rampling as my very favorite lead actress performance, but it really is my favorite lead performance male or female of the year. And we'll talk a little bit more about that on next week's show as we discuss 45 years. Our thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. We hope you will go to filmspotting.net and participate in this week's poll question, which sets the table for our upcoming top five, our most anticipated films of 2016. And really, we plucked three movies that we think probably could qualify as the three most anticipated by the majority of film spotting listeners. We could be wrong. We'll see how the results shake out. We didn't give you an other, though, because we kind of view this as a three-way death match. So looking at directors we love, the films they have coming out over the course of the first half of 2016, which of these three first-half releases 
are you most excited about? The first one is the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar, their comic caper set in 50s-era Hollywood. George Clooney, Scarlett Johansson, Channing Tatum, Tilda Swinton. It opens February 5. The long, 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 long-awaited Midnight Special from Jeff Nichols will finally be out on March 18. It's a sci-fi story. Nichols, of course, made Mud and Take Shelter. He's back with Michael Shannon this time. The third option, Richard Linklater snuck up on us with a movie I didn't know about until about maybe two weeks ago. Everybody wants some. It's being called a spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused. So it's set in the early 80s. It's opening April 15. So three different releases, February, March, April, three pretty formidable directors. Maybe Jeff Nichols not totally fitting in with Linklater and Coen Brothers in terms of the body of work. He's only made, what is it, three feature films, but has two actually that are supposed to be coming out in 2016, including Midnight Special. Josh, do you have a clear winner here? No, I I have two that I don't think I'll ever be able to choose between. It's Hail Caesar and Midnight Special. Yeah, I mean you're the I'm a Linkletter fan, but nowhere near the level you are. Mm-hmm. Coen Brothers. How can I vote against the Coen Brothers? But I've been looking forward to Midnight Special for so long. I think it has such potential in terms of not only the talent involved, but just to see Nichols fully embrace sci-fi, which Mm -hmm. he maybe flirted with a little bit in Take Shelter. Um, You could read the film different ways, but I think he did a little bit, and it just sounds like it really could be huge. I don't. I don't know. I can't. I'm not. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to choose right now. <laughs> See, you're pulling the old, the old out that I do. Sometimes, I still have time, which is I'll vote later. Yes. and I'll wait till the results come in. But I do try to put myself in that situation. This is what we envision with the death match, where you picture yourself walking into a multiplex. These are the only three movies playing. You only get to see one. The other two disappear forever. Which one do you pick? And I can't believe we're going to agree on something this episode. It's a nice change. I'm inclined to go with Hail Caesar because it's the Coen brothers. And Mm -hmm. the fact is the only two filmmakers whose movies I would probably be more inclined to walk into ahead of a Coen brothers film, not knowing anything about them, the cast, setting, whatever, would be Paul Thomas Anderson and probably Quentin Tarantino. So the Coen brothers right up there in any discussion for me of my favorite directors. And yet I think it is just the anticipation of Midnight Special. We've talked about it now. It feels like for two years and seeing a really talented young director like Jeff Nichols take on a bit of new subject matter. As you said, you could potentially argue about a sci-fi element to take shelter, but not really. This is supposed to be more explicitly Mm -hmm. so. But again, working with a great actor like Michael Shannon, I think that's the door I walk through. You're doing Midnight Special. I'm doing Midnight Special right right, now. I'll come with you. Okay. Midnight Special it is. We want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. Those three titles were among the 30 I started with for my list of the most anticipated movies of 2016. I had to whittle that down considerably for the Film Spotting Top 5, which is next. Stay with us. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair but her mommy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for She's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on Sailors fighting in the dance hall Oh man, look at those cavemen go 
Josh, it's been a little while since we've been able to share some thank yous and do a donation segment due to the holidays and getting a fix episode in there and the round table, which was a pretty robust enough show without some additional stuff. And what that means is, as happens every year, because our listeners are so generous and supportive of the show, is that donations get backlogged. We've gotten a lot of support and I feel bad that we didn't get to these earlier, but we're going to try to make up for it now. If we don't get to every single note right this moment, we are at least going to get in all the names here of everybody who was so generous with their support of film spotting. We start with our donors, Virginia Tolani in Austin, Texas, Colin in Washington, D.C., Paul M. in Austin, Texas, Peter in Brooklyn, Glenn in Sacramento, California, Jacob in Denver, of our movie fame earlier in the show. The In Session Film Podcast got a great note from JD. We've both been on that show. Thanks for the support. Lindsay in Omaha and John in Philadelphia. We also got a bunch of new Bucka Show donors, people who have donated $1 for every week of the year. That would include Ben from Newton, Kansas, Jonathan from Gaithersburg, Maryland, Stuart in Arlington, Virginia. Right here in Chicago, we have a donation from Jeffrey, also from Doug in Palo Alto, California, Robert in Richmond, Maine, and Greg Alvarez in Brooklyn, New York. Some Silver Club donors, Joshua in Greenville, South Carolina, Jeffrey M., here in Chicago, Jonathan in Bloomington, Indiana, Eliza in New York, New York, Tom here in Oaklawn, Illinois, Jonas in West Roxbury, Massachusetts, Alexandria in Mild Stomping Grounds, Eastern Iowa, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Sheila in Sherwood Park, Alberta, and Chris Bentley-Smith in Cambridge, UK. A bunch of $5 a month donors as well here. That includes Matthew from Durham, North Carolina, Duncan in Montreal, Melissa Kay in Chicago, John from Walnut Creek, California, Ryan in Boulder, Colorado, Michelle in Huntsville, Texas, Eric from Solna, Sweden, Sarah from San Francisco, and back to Denver we go with Tony Gallegos. Some Gold Club donors, Christopher in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia, Nora in L.A., Laura M. in Shorewood, Wisconsin, as well as two new $10 a month donors, John W. in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Andrew right here in Chicago. And at the very generous platinum level is Mitchell from Gainesville, Florida, Brig from San Francisco, Kevin Carey from Chicago, and Stephen from Forest Hills, New York. So let's get into a few of the comments as we pay tribute a little bit to some of our listeners who sent us not only some of their hard-earned cash, but sent us some very nice notes as well. We'll start with Stephen in Forest Hills, New York, who said he's finally paying the dealer with a catch-up donation of $234, representing a buck a show since I started listening at show 335, which reviewed Cedar Rapids. Oh, great movie. You weren't even on the show yet. Great movie. A film I wouldn't have otherwise bothered with and ended up loving. It's one of many films I would have ignored or been ignorant of, including poetry, my favorite film of 2011. Steven says he subscribed to Film Spotting just in time for it to help me through the last year of caring for my wife, Rachel, who passed away three and a half years ago. Your top 10 list to this day helped me through an especially tough time of year coming as they do during the holidays, spent now without her and her birthday, which was December 29th. Much as I love each year's top 10 shows, I also find them frustrating because we get not one but four top 10 lists plus a heap of other votes for 2015 
36 different movies were mentioned in all. So every year, I undertake an exercise to discern the actual film spotting top 10, and this time I thought I'd share it with you. Here are our top 10 movies. He assigned some point totals, obviously rating how the four of us, along with Michael and Scott, ranked these films. So do you want to go ahead and share how he ended up getting a ranking here? As lo- No, if I have to explain the math, we're in no, trouble, but I can show you what ended up. Yeah, that's what I'm <laughs> that's, after. That's more my territory. At number one, this isn't a surprise, right? Mad Max Fury Road. Number two, Carol. Three, Ex Machina. Four, Spotlight. Then we have The Assassin, Inside Out, and some ties here towards the bottom in terms of mentions, I'm assuming. 45 years, Anomalisa, Tangerine, and Brooklyn. Yeah, in ninth place, Tangerine and Brooklyn were a tie, and in seventh place, 45 years, and Anomalisa. Steven says, thanks again for not just the many hours enjoyably spent listening, but the many hours watching and re-watching films I might have missed or viewed with a deeper appreciation and a more open mind. Well, thank you, Stephen, for not only doing all the math there and your donation, and we certainly wish you all the best in 2016. Wanted to mention as well, Kevin Carey in Chicago giving us one of those platinum level donations. Kevin was another one of my students I've taught at the University of Chicago's Graham School. I want to say he took my Cinema Verite class, but it might have actually been my Roger Ebert class. I'm sorry, Kevin, I can't recall. Maybe he took both, but a great guy. We saw him actually at the live show, had a chance to talk with him and thank him in person for his donation. A couple other notes and the ones we don't get to, we're sorry. We'll share them next week on the show during our donation segment when it might just be a little bit lighter. But here's one we got from one of our Bucket Show donors, Greg Alvarez in Brooklyn. I finally dropped a bit of that hard-earned cash your way to thank you for the hours and hours of intelligent talk about film through the years. Earlier this year, I promised you I would finally donate. And despite it not being remotely reflective of your worth, I hope it helps a little bit in pushing the show onward to ensure that it turns up in my podcast feed every week. Yes, I was one of the unfortunate souls who did hear the main spoiler in the beginning of that portion of your Star Wars review. No! Your nightmare, Josh. No. It came true. I listened to part one of the best of 2015 show, then it jumped back to the spot where I shut off the Star Wars preview and heard those fateful words. See, I knew that was going to happen. No blame, Greg says, <laughs> blame thankfully. Us. No blame to impose except my own. Anyway, continued good work, and thanks for reading my analysis of Diamonds Are Forever earlier this year. Josh, you definitely need to give it another chance. Was I especially hard on Diamonds Are Forever? I don't recall. I'm, I'm, but I must have apparently been. Apparently, Greg okay. remembers. So. I will give it another chance. <laughs> Laura in Sherwood, Wisconsin, sent us this great note. I've been an intermittent film spotting listener for several years and don't know why it's taken me so long to say thank you in the form of a donation. I certainly thought I ought to a number of times, but then just never got around to it. But this week I was reminded again how important movies can be. My line of work, oncology, can be emotionally grueling at times. For the last several days when I've started the car on the way home from work, I tuned into film spotting catching up on a few older episodes say anything as well as the best of 2015 listening to you guys is like listening to friends chat at a dinner table diverting thought-provoking and inspiring it's not just that your show provides a great way to get out of my head and out of my day-to-day worries it's more it pulls me back to an art form that reminds me how big the world is and how universal are the experiences of suffering and love and death this donation is just to say thank you for that reminder i got home yesterday and watched tangerine a movie i never would have been exposed to except for your reviews and thought it was hilarious and Grace filled. My favorite parts were listening to Cindy promising there was going to be no drama. That and the bus ride with the Target Tramp hostage. And if you've seen Tangerine, you know exactly what Laura is referring to. Anyway, she says, 
Thanks for the show. I feel a part of this community. Wow. Thanks so much, Laura. And so glad you checked out Tangerine. Yeah, that is very rewarding to hear. Please do keep fighting the good fight. And we're glad you're part of the film spotting community as well. Our hearty thanks to everybody who sent us a note, who sent us a buck or two. No matter how big or small, it means so much. It really does help augment the sponsorship dollars we make here on Film Spotting, including from great partners like the Vermont College of Fine Art MFA in Film. Our final entry for the Vermont College of Fine Art MFA, we've been very pleased to have them on board these past six weeks or so as a sponsor. And if there are any listeners out there who have decided to apply or who have been part of the program and have some projects they want to share with us, we would love to check them out and potentially share them with our audience. The program offers a two-year student design project-driven grad program of professional mentorships for your scripts, fiction, and nonfiction filmmaking. Each semester begins with an on-campus week of screenings, lectures, along with preparation of an independent study plan for your personal projects. And then you go back, you return home to work independently and meet monthly via Skype with faculty as your projects unfold. The MFA program is designed to fit into the life you have and the films you make. Students at the Vermont program, they come to it with a project in mind. Many are arriving actually with a strong festival and professional record. They are joining the program essentially to refine their creative voice. The faculty and the special residency artists, they come from around the globe. They work in every genre of film and time-based media. So there's a wide range of experience in all aspects aspects of film practice. It's a little bit different from other film programs in that students here are not locked into tracks. Instead, they're encouraged to explore and experiment in any area of filmmaking their projects take them under, of course, the mentorship of accomplished professionals. So if that sounds like a good fit for your creative pursuits, visit vcfa.edu film. Hi, this is Todd Haynes, the director of I'm Not There, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Mr. Wayne. Clark Kent, Daily Planet. What's your position on the bat vigilante in Gotham? Civil liberties are being trampled on in your city. People living in fear. He thinks he's above the law. The Daily Planet criticizing those who think they're above the laws are hypocritical. What'd you say? Considering every time your hero saves a cat out of a tree, you read a puff piece editorial about an alien. It could burn the whole place down. This is Film Spotting. We go from Tarantino versus Inyari 2 and Adam versus Josh to Batman v Superman. Zack Snyder. Can with... I be Batman? I want to be Batman. Go for it. I would prefer to be Superman. Okay, good. I don't see how this is a fair fight. I, I don't know what suspense there is in this movie showing my ignorance of this huge blockbuster that is surely going to come. Ben Affleck making his debut as Bruce Wayne slash Josh Larson Batman. Henry Cavill returning as Clark Kent slash Superman. It's out March 25th, and it's the first one, at least chronologically, of many big sequels or franchise movies that are coming out in 2016. I mean, Zoolander 2 coming out in February. Captain America Civil War, the Russo brothers back. I am genuinely yeah, excited that, to see that That one film. I'm anticipating. X-Men Apocalypse, which I might not be that interested in. Brian Singer back, but mm. the great Oscar Isaac mm. playing the titular villain. All right. That's May 27th. And there are a few others. Doctor Strange way down the road in November. Ghostbusters coming back before that in July. Paul Feig rebooting that with Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, and other talented females making up that cast. But 
I'm guessing, Josh, there's not going to be an overly heavy franchise feel to our choices as we get into our top five most anticipated movies of 2016. Maybe you'll surprise me, but probably not where we're going to go with these. And one thing I did want to pose to you up front is, do you think 2016 actually looks like it's shaping up to be a pretty amazing year, at least as far as which directors are supposed to be releasing movies in 2016? Or is it just a matter of the sources that are doing all of their 2016 previews have all gotten better and more thorough and there's more films to be aware of maybe every year preview looks like this we just don't have all the resources to pull from and we're not aware of as many great films coming out it just seems like something's different this year yeah i mean you know i would think in the, the last couple of years have had the same level of information out there at least but i'll tell you i when i said 30 films that's about right mm-hmm. and it was hard to choose among that list so i don't recall how many i chose from in previous years but it looked really rich when I looked at that list that I had to whittle down. Yeah, it was very hard to whittle it down. And one way that we helped ourselves out a little bit is we excluded three movies. And Josh, I actually excluded four. I wonder if you did something similar. But the three films that we included in our 2016 first half preview deathmatch poll, Hail Caesar from the Coen Brothers, Midnight Special from Jeff Nichols, and Everybody Wants Some from Richard Linklater, all pretty strong contenders for this top five list, I think, for both of us. So we thought, why not just set them aside and get into some movies and some filmmakers that maybe aren't as much on everybody's radar. So that helped us out a little bit. I also excluded The Lobster. Me too. Did you? Okay. I think it was on, was it on both of our fall preview lists? It wasn't just on a recent preview list. Here's the thing. We've been anticipating The Lobster for so long. From Yorgos Lanthimos, we Yorgos should say. Yorgos Lanthimos, right, the director of Dogtooth, mm-hmm. a film we love, a less successful film, but still interesting, Alps was his follow-up. This is the movie, The Lobster, that Ryan Johnson, the great filmmaker Ryan Johnson, making the next Star Wars movie, picked on our 2015 roundtable show as his very favorite film of 2015. Because Just to it did rub come it in out. that he'd yeah. seen it already. It did come out in some markets, and I think it played the Cannes Film Festival and... My notes tell me that is, in fact, true. It's supposed to be playing Sundance, kicking off, I believe, this weekend here in Park City, Utah, and then a March release. But, Josh, we had it on our list of the most anticipated films of 2014. (laughs) 2014. So we've been waiting. We have. And how can you not be waiting for a movie with this plot description? Single people must find romantic partners in 45 days or be transformed into beasts and sent into the woods. I mean, he has the best one-sentence plot synopses of all time. And that's not allegorical either, I have a feeling. (laughs) No. I think that's what we're going to get. Exactly. So we left off The Lobster just because, again, it's come up here many times. Those four films we're really excited about. A film I'm guessing we both overlooked is the choice of listener Ben in Houston, Texas, who is going to get us started with a very nice voicemail. Hey, Adam and Josh. Ben from Houston, Texas here. I'm calling in for my pick for the most anticipated film of 2016, which for me is a film I doubt will be on either of your lists, despite starring Adam's boy, one Michael Fassbender. And that is Assassin's Creed, which is based on the popular video game franchise of the same name. Now, the reason it probably isn't anticipated for you is the source material, as video game films have mostly been awful and never been great. However, I have hope in this film being the first great video game movie due to the creative force behind it, namely much of the cast and crew of 2015's Macbeth, including director Justin Kurzel, stars Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard, DP Adam Arkapaw, 
and Kurzel newcomers Brendan Gleeson and Michael K. Williams. I don't think a video game film has ever had this caliber of artistic vision behind it, and I hope it will finally bridge the gap between movies and video games, my two favorite hobbies. With Assassin's Creed and Duncan Jones' Warcraft coming out, it will be a very interesting year to see if Hollywood can finally get video game films right. Look forward to your picks, and hopefully another great year in cinema. Yes, I did overlook this because I saw the title Assassin's Creed and kept moving. Based on the popular video game franchise, doesn't do anything for you, Josh, is what you're no, saying. No, no. I just, okay. you know, the, the video game genre has not proven to me to be markers of potential most anticipated of the year films. Mm-hmm. So now I see, well, there may be some interesting things going on here with this cast. Right. And as Ben notes, you have Duncan Jones, of course, David Bowie's son, making Warcraft. That's coming out this year as well. So if Passed we right are, by that one too. Yeah, if we're seeing some of these video game franchises that snobs like us are maybe really quick to completely dismiss, being directed by interesting talents, starring really interesting talents, we might just have to reconsider. So let's see just how snobby we get as we get into our picks for the most anticipated movies of the year. What do you have? Let me get two disclaimers, two more disclaimers. Two more disclaimers. Wow, Sorry. isn't that my job? I had to, uh, hopefully you set aside Night of Cups as well, because I think we had that on last year's list. This we is Terrence Malick's film. You just left it off. Yeah, okay, well, I left cut. it off too, because I didn't want to repeat that. This was one of my top three anticipated of last year, along with Midnight Special and... Sophia Coppola's Little Mermaid. Remember that? Which is not Remember that project? The no. fantasy movie you made no. up in your head? She dropped out of it in June. Uh-huh. It did exist at one time. Uh-huh. All right. So here's what I do have after all of that. That was about as long as our Revenant Hateful Eight review, wasn't it? I have at number five, La La Land. Really, all you need to know is that this is a modern-day musical from Whiplash writer-director Damien Chazelle. Ryan Gosling is a jazz pianist. Emma Stone is an aspiring actress. It's set in L.A. naturally. Now, I don't know much about the music itself. I tried to find something out about this. Obviously, that's going to be a huge component of a musical. The IMDb page for La La Land has a music credit for Justin Hurwitz. He did the scores for Whiplash and Chazelle's Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. I'm not sure, though, if he's providing original songs here or what they're going to do. I am confident, though, in how he and Chazelle have used music and film, obviously, with the jazz-soaked Whiplash. So that's going to be an element that they've taken care with here. The cast for La La Land also includes Whiplash's J.K. Simmons, along with Rosemary DeWitt and John Legend. And I do like this pairing of Gosling and Stone. Um, What's not to like? I mean, really, what are you going to complain about? My younger daughter and I were in the midst of uh, this ongoing Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers marathon. If those two manage, you know, to channel just an ounce of their classic charm, I'll be pretty pleased. So La La Land opens July 15. Well, just for you, Josh, I wanted to start 2016 off properly our very first new top five list of 2016 right out of the gate i've got to cheat <laughs> it's my wasn't that a resolution technology. you had this no, year no no cheats i just top didn't bother fives? maybe oh, last year goodness. and i think i stuck to it pretty well last year but i'm i'm all for rule breaking for 2016 and it is my fear of technology double feature starting with the circle which right now i don't have a set release date for it's not out there but Supposed to be 2016. It comes from a book by Dave Eggers. Stars Tom Hanks and Emma Watson. It's got a great cast, including those two. John Boyega, of course, from Star Wars The Force Awakens fame and Attack the Block. And it's director James Ponsold, who we've enjoyed 
from his work like The Spectacular Now and The End of the Tour last year. This is going to be a little bit of a change for him, maybe similar subject matter along the lines of a movie such as Ex Machina that we both love from last year, really a sci-fi movie about a character, I believe it's Watson's character, who gets a job working for a company that's sort of supposed to be a conglomerate of Google, Facebook, and Apple and gets caught up in a web of paranoia and other mayhem. I'm fascinated by that film, but I wanted to pair it with this movie, which just has a wonderful title. Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World. Wasn't that one of your student films? (laughs) It might have been. I am that pretentious. Werner Herzog. This is the plot description. Oh, yeah, this is his documentary. Yeah, Werner Herzog's (laughs) exploration of the Internet and the connected world. He's allowed to have titles like that. Of course he is. He's Werner Herzog. He can do whatever (laughs) he wants. And I want to see anything he makes. So I'm curious about both The Circle and, lo and behold, Reveries of the Connected World. Also, I think I'm just going to name my next band that because it's so much fun to say. It might get a little awkward, though. It might. It's supposed to play at Sundance, the Herzog film. Not sure about a set release date, but we will cross our fingers for 2016. All right, lest we do get accused of being snobs, I've, I've got a pick here that might help with that. It's Keanu. This uh, isn't an in-depth early biopic about the Matrix star, though. It's the feature starring debut of Key and Peele. It's I not, don't know if you It's knew not the alternate title of John Wick 2, because I'm <laughs> no. excited about that as well. Is that on your list, number oh, two? We'll I consider get to it. it. Keanu, though, I was mostly a viral video watcher of Key and Peele's mm-hmm. Comedy Central series. When people started talking about something, I'd check it out. But I do know from watching enough of that that, like Amy Schumer, I shouldn't undersell their big screen potential. They're they're that good, that talented, that funny. Now, unlike Trainwreck, though, uh, Key and Peele, they're not going to jump in by embracing a comfortable formula like romantic comedy. Ken, who is about friends who try to get their stolen cat back by posing as drug dealers. I guess that's all the plot they really need. Luis Guzman and Will Forte are on board for this, along with this might really sell you on it, Adam, noted comedian Method Man. They managed to get him, too. So who knows <laughs> what this is going to be? Of How High Fame, one of <laughs> exactly. my worst films of whatever year that came out. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, <laughs> hopefully Keanu will entice you despite that. It's opening April 29. Completely off my radar, even though I've heard about it. It was just not one that came up in my research this year. And I love Key and Peele, so I'm intrigued as well. We do usually, this is another disclaimer I meant to throw out there, typically with these lists, not every top five list, but ones like our previews where it's very possible we could have some overlap. We share our picks, and sometimes we move things around a little bit so they're not overly redundant. We did not do that here, so we'll see how much we share as we get through these, and hopefully there won't be too much overlap, but there is going to be with my number four because I have La La Land from Damien Chazelle at number four, and you already really expressed everything that excites me about the movie as well. All you have to say is Chazelle after Whiplash, another movie, featuring his love of music, a former musician, obviously in Whiplash, and Guy and Madeline on a park bench has featured music very prominently, and it is a genuine musical, which I'm always fascinated to see how people sort of revive and put new spins on that genre. I wish we had a couple of these every year. I don't know why we don't. You throw in Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, who I didn't know Gosling actually could sing or dance, but he's Ryan Gosling and he can do everything. Wasn't so he a Mouseketeer? Yeah, exactly. I should well, have known that. Contractually required to sing and dance for their food, Adam. You know his his biography better than I do. You've been studying. I've been a fan you, long time, long you read time. Teen Beat, didn't you? Exactly. <laughs> but he was recently the host of Saturday Night Live and they did play off that a lot. I think in his opening monologue, he sang and there was another number where he danced. He's got the moves. He's the coolest guy on the planet. You put him with Emma Stone and 
I have to see that movie. So La La Land's my number four. All right. At number three, I have Certain Women. Now, when you name someone's movie the number five movie of the film spotting era, as yeah. I did with Kelly Reichert's Meeks cut off on her 500th episode, you better put her upcoming movie on a list like this. Certain Women is a contemporary drama. It involves three different women in small town America. Listen to... These women are played by, though, Laura Dern, Kristen Stewart, and Michelle Williams. Williams, of course, a veteran of Reichert's Fine, Wendy, and Lucy. So that is quite a cast. It also has James LaGrosse, a guy who I think he's almost always anonymously great in whatever part he takes on. Meek's Cutoff, I will say, is something of a brilliant outlier for me in regard to Reichert's work. I've admired her other films, just not nearly as much as that one. But just on the basis of Meek's cutoff alone, it's enough to make me hopeful anytime that she does mm-hmm. step up to the plate. Certain Women is playing at Sundance, just one of the reasons I'm sad to miss the festival this year. And the release date that I've been able to find beyond that, I'm not sure if this is for Chicago, but I did see March 11. So okay. hopefully soon for the rest of us. That would be great. My number three is a movie that will hopefully endear me to any listeners who want something a little more mainstream, but genuinely genuinely excited for Born 5, the untitled fifth Jason Bourne movie. July 29th is when it's supposed to be released. Paul Greengrass is back. Matt Damon is back. Getting the band back together. I think maybe Chris Klemek doesn't have to send me any hate mail or hateful tweets. We can just say this is a sequel, right? I don't know what happened with Jeremy Renner and the whole timeline and rebooting and whatever those drugs are called in that film that they're talking about constantly. But The Chems, I think is what they were called. How can I forget The Chems after they said it 57 times? But that movie had its moments. Not a great entry in The Bourne Legacy. Isn't The Bourne Legacy one of the names of these films? Maybe? I don't know. I think it is. But I want to see this because I want to see those two back together. Viggo Mortensen and Vincent Cassell. Mortensen is one of those guys who owns every movie that he's in. I love watching him as an actor. They are, I think, supposed to be maybe bad guys or provide some opposition to Bourne in this film. Julia Stiles reappears. That's not so good because I only like her to a certain point in most of her performances and sometimes don't like her at all. But Alicia Vikander of Ex Machina and many other good performances is also joining the cast for Bourne 5. All right, that's one of these sequels, reboots, let's just call them reheats. They're just, they're just reheats of this stuff we've been served you. before that I'm not dreading, though. I look at the list of a lot of these, and it's just you just kind of sigh. Yeah. And this one, yeah, I'll check it out. Could be good. Number two for me is Julieta. I was one of the very few who enjoyed Pedro Almodovar's last film. I'm so excited. So that means Julieta, this is being looked at a little bit as a potential comeback. Uh, His other previous film, The Skin I Live In, wasn't all that well received either. And in fact, even I actively dislike that one. Certainly, though, Julieta, this is more familiar, promising territory for Almodovar, who's this famed woman-friendly director. It has Emma Suarez and Adriana Ugarte playing differently aged versions of the title character. I think it follows her across a span of about 30 years of her life. So that's all I know about Juliet at this point. It's enough for me. There's an April release in Spain, so it should make it to the States later Mm -hmm. in the year. An honorable mention for me. My number two, again, you did the heavy lifting for me. It is Certain Women, the Kelly Reichert film that, as you said, is going to play Sundance and hopefully come out in March. And I do love sometimes when you get a perfectly concise but interesting and actually enticing plot synopsis. And the synopsis for certain women over at IMDb is the lives of three women intersect in small town America where each is imperfectly blazing a trail. And that inclusion of the word imperfectly does just evoke 
a whole lot of interest for me in what these three very different women are up to and how they overlap and how they diverge from each other. And you mentioned it's Reichert, and I'm with you that Meek's Cutoff is, I think, by far her best film, but I'm a big fan of all the movies. I think we both did positively review her most recent movie, Night Moves. Mm -hmm. And if you look at those films, whether it's Old Joy or it's Meek's Cutoff, which is a Western, Old Joy is kind of this just intimate drama about two friends and you go to something like night moves which is an eco thriller right. if you will she does like to play around with some different genres and this seems like it's a little bit of a departure for her but she's one of those filmmakers who i'm always really curious about and the cast as well love seeing that collaboration between williams and Riker. laura dern really never does anything false on screen. She just doesn't. She's really good in last year's Wild with Reese Witherspoon as the mother there. And she's really good in 99 Homes this past year with Andrew Garfield playing his mother in that film. And Kristen Stewart, an actress who sensed the clouds of Sils Maria for me, working with Olivier Asayas, has really proven herself as an actress who is up to the talents of Williams and Dern, or at least deserves certainly to be in a movie with them. She had no problem playing off Juliette Binoche in Sils Maria, and she might just be the best actress on the planet. So if she can hold her own against her, she certainly can with Williams and Laura Dern. And I think that collaboration of those three women and Reichert should be pretty fascinating. All right. And number one, I went with a potential blockbuster, big name director. It's the BFG. I'll tell you, this is the most excited I've been for a Steven Spielberg film, I think, since War of the Worlds, to be honest with you. It's an adaptation of a Roald Dahl children's book about a girl who befriends a giant. The title stands for Big Friendly Giant. Now, Dahl is one of my favorite authors, and this was before his fantastic Mr. Fox was transformed into a brilliant Wes Anderson film. I've loved him for a long time, Roald Dahl. I've also enjoyed Spielberg's recent grown-up period. I think you can call with Bridge of Spies, Lincoln, and to a lesser degree, Warhorse. But this sort of thing is my favorite Steven Spielberg mode when he's he embraces his imaginative, childlike sensibility. So you think of films like Close Encounters, I would say, definitely E.T. Um, AI Artificial Intelligence has a lot of that. Unfortunately, we probably have to throw Hook in there as well. But the other ones of those are among his best. Now, speaking of E.T., on the BFG, he's reteaming with E.T. screenwriter Melissa Matheson, which it's interesting. She hasn't written a script since Kundun for Martin Scorsese, which was 1997. So this has brought her back after a long time hmm. away. So all the ingredients are here. Can only hope it's a return to kid flick form for Spielberg. It's a summer release coming out on July 1. It was the witching hour when the boogeyman comes out. When people go missing. The girls say the witching hour arrives at midnight. I think it comes at three in the morning when I'm the only one left awake. Like always, like now. Never get out of bed. I'll probably get hate mail for this, and I'll certainly get a dirty look from you, but I'll say this in as much of a non-judgmental way as possible, because that's how I mean it. The words Roald Dahl adaptation mean nothing to me. I have no sense of why that's something I should be excited about. I've never read one of his stories. I mean, I'm familiar, obviously, with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Well, but you know, when you get home tonight, that's about all I've got. they're short books. Pick one up, read it, and then mm. you'll know. 
Okay. Probably won't happen, Josh, but <laughs> I'll think of you as I'm ignoring Roald Dahl. Well, at least we didn't have an overlap with our number one picks because I am going with another huge director on par with Spielberg. He's John Cameron Mitchell in oh, his upcoming film, How to Talk to Girls at Parties. It's an adaptation of a story from Neil Gaiman. It was first published in 2006 in one of Gaiman's anthologies. And if I was just looking at the plot synopsis, I'd still be pretty interested because it's just so whacked out. It's set in 1970s suburban London. You've got a main character who's supposedly a kind of shy punk rocker and he's got two close friends and they sneak into a party and they meet a bunch of really cute women who seem to I think express some interest in them and they think maybe they might be part of a cult or something and then it turns out they do finally put it together that they are from another planet and even as they start to put together why they're there and that maybe they do have some negative plans for the world that doesn't stop the main character from falling in love with one of those aliens. So that is interesting. But the fact that it's John Cameron Mitchell who gave us Hedwig and the Angry Inch and then Short Bus and then Rabbit Hole, three films I love, but that were made very far apart. And he hasn't done anything since Rabbit Hole, which I want to say I don't have it in front of me, maybe 2006. It's been a while. Yeah, I think it was 2006 when that film came out. He's done some TV stuff. He's done some shorts. But this is his first feature since Rabbit Hole, that film starring a very young Miles Teller, who I think is really good in that film. I just love his sensibility and his sensitivity that he brings to the movies he makes. And it is also being distributed by A24, who has a pretty good track record at they this do. point. I have a lot of faith in them. It started filming, I believe, in November. It's in post-production now. It bodes well for a 2016 release. And it's the one film I want to see the most from 2016. Well, with that description, too, it, it sounds like it has the potential to be as wild as Hedwig, which would be really something. So, yeah, honorable mention for me. I'd ask you for more honorable mentions, and maybe you want to share some, which you can. But I'm going to hold off because we do have an entire part two of our preview that's going to come on next week's show where we get into some of our questions surrounding the movies of 2016 and the ones we're anticipating. I'm sure we'll get into a lot more titles then, but any films that you just can't avoid mentioning now? Yeah, let me throw a few out there just because it's always good to, as you were saying, how do we find out about what's going to come out, it's always good to get as many titles out there as possible. So Martin Scorsese's Silence, I considered, but it didn't make the cut because I'm punishing him for punishing me still for The Wolf of Wall Street. So sorry about that, <sighs> Marty. Other movie masters with new releases in 2016. Claire Denis has High Life. Jim Jarmusch has Patterson. That's starring Adam Driver. Zhang Yimou has The Great Wall. Werner Herzog, you talked about the film. I can't even remember the Lo title because it's so long anymore. But he also has Salt and Fire, a drama coming out. Christopher Guest has mascots. And I'm only half kidding, including him with the movie Masters there. It's been a while since he's been masterful, but still sounds intriguing. Nicholas Winding Refn returns with Neon Demon, but he's also on probation for Only God Forgives. And of all those superhero movies we alluded to, I would agree with you. The only one I'm really intrigued by is Captain America Civil War. Well, I did consider many of those, and at least half of them are probably honorable mentions for me. The other half weren't honorable mentions. I'm just not as excited as you are. The one I'll mention right now, because I have a feeling it won't come up next week, but I watched the trailer for, and have to admit, I can't wait to see. It is Elvis and Nixon. Have you heard about this film? No. Michael Shannon. Because who else would play Elvis Presley but Michael Shannon? I can see that. That's him. And he goes up against Kevin Spacey as Richard Nixon. And it's 
a film that documents, it's a recreation, if you will, of the real-life meeting that took place between them. And if you watch the trailer, I think it opens by telling you this fact that, like, of all the pictures that come out of the White House archives, yeah. the one that's most purchased or most requested is that picture. Oh, yeah. Somehow that I can image, see it right now. Right, you can see it, everybody listening. Can. Right. That image of Nixon and Elvis shaking, <laughs> I think they're in the Oval Office, shaking hands, is this iconic image. And it's, of course, this interesting clash in history where you've got this Elvis figure who kind of stood for anti-establishment, at least early in his career. Mm-hmm. And... He's going up against the ultimate establishment character in Richard Nixon, but is fascinated by him and, of course, is into guns and authority, and he wants to help the federal government. You watch that trailer and tell me it doesn't look pretty great. And then Michael Shannon isn't perfect as Elvis. And I mean perfect not in that he's doing the best imitation ever, but just has the sort of mercurial majesty that Elvis exuded and he carries it and it just looks like it's fun as hell. Oh, it's going to be fun to watch. It could be a real ham fest, but hey. That would be fun, too. So. Absolutely. Those are our top five most anticipated movies of 2016. Send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. On Twitter, find us at filmspotting. That's Adam. And at Larson on film, that's me. You can also find filmspotting at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in our archives. And while you're there, take a moment and please vote in the current film spotting poll. We want to know your pick for the most anticipated pre-summer Directors We Love edition movie, Coen Brothers versus Richard Linklater versus Jeff Nichols. Out in wide release this weekend, The Boy, which the description we have in front of us is creepy doll horror. The best kind of horror. (laughs) When are dolls not creepy? Dirty Grandpa, De Niro as the Dirty Grandpa. The Fifth Wave, this is a dystopian sci-fi flick with Chloe Grace Moretz. Out in limited release opening here in Chicago, The Lady in the Van with Maggie Smith that I do actually want to see based on the description. I think based on a true story and a perfect day with Benicio Del Toro and Tim Robbins. They play a pair of jaded aid workers trying to resolve an armed crisis in the Balkans. The big release, though, the one we can both pre-recommend before our review is 45 Years. Again, my number three film of 2015 opening this weekend and giving away free passes over at filmspotting.net if you go there for information about how to enter. Next week on the show, we are planning on reviewing 45 Years and sharing part two of our most anticipated movies of 2016, the questions we have about the year. What Probably we're curious about. a little less contentious review next week, unless you get really angry that I don't like it quite enough. Enough. That could happen. It could. Watch it. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.